Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 432 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, the first instalment of a two-part interview, Sid Moore speaks with Doug Johnston about her early writing life and the inclusive inspiration of seminal 80s and 90s culture, unexpectedly becoming a TV presenter on Channel 4, the self-doubt she experienced on not getting published, and the problematic Essex girl stereotype. Sid Moore is a writer, presenter, curator and activist. She is best known for the Essex Witch Museum Mysteries, a series which includes five novels and two collections of short stories. Books from this series have been shortlisted for both the Good Reader Holmes and Watson Award and the prestigious Dagger Award by the Crime Writers Association. Sid has also written two standalone novels, The Drowning Pool and Witch Hunt, and has been commissioned to write a new series set in the Second World War. Prior to writing, Sid was a lecturer, worked extensively in the publishing industry and presented Channel 4's book programme, Pulp. She was the founding editor of Level 4, an arts and culture magazine, and co-creator of Super Strumps, a game that reclaimed female stereotypes. More recently, she founded the Essex Girls Liberation Front and successfully campaigned to have the definition of Essex Girl removed from the Oxford Learner's Dictionary. Sid Moore, hi, how are you doing? Hi Doug, it's great to be here, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. One of the things I wanted to start off, I don't always start off interviews like this, but I want to ask, did you always want to be a writer? Because I, there's a couple of things, you seem to have done a lot of stuff before you became a published writer, which I think is great. And also I'm always kind of suspicious about people who say, yes, I knew I wanted to be a writer at the age of three because I, I wasn't like that. And I just wondered what your situation was. Yeah, I mean, yes and no, really. Classic, cliche, always read books, avid reader. I liked writing poetry. I got into my local evening Echo newspaper with a poem about an orange when I was seven. Nice. So I thought, obviously, yeah. And I decided, obviously, I'm going to be a poet now. And then I did my playwrights or my drama badge for the Brownies, and I ended up writing... A screenplay. So then I thought, well, obviously I'm going to be a playwright yeah. now. <laughs> and then, and then I sort of became a teenager and decided I wanted to be a pop star, possibly like you. <laughs> and uh, well, not a pop star, an indie kid. Yeah. And so I did a few bits and pieces there, but I did do English at uni, and I really enjoyed it. And at the time, though, I mean, we're talking about sort of the late '80s. And really, I, although I, I had entertained ideas about writing, as a working-class girl from Essex, I kind of didn't think that I'd be able to do it because everyone seemed to me to be white, middle-class men. Yeah. And I just feel, you know, I haven't got anything... I can't write about, you know, going to the Alps. I didn't think I could write about going to the Algarve and having affairs with students <laughs> and things like that. Oh, the, the Oxbridge um, dinner party just, thing, yeah. Yeah, and I just, I, you know, that's... I was reading Iris Murdoch, who I think is brilliant, and I was reading uh, Martin Amis, and, you know, that, that was sort of in vogue at the time. And I just didn't think I could belong to it because I just felt it was... I felt I just othered 
myself really but i had this kind of epiphany when generation x came out by douglas coupland right okay yeah one of my friends came in and just said you've got to read this it's amazing it's about people like us <laughs> and then he lent it to me and i was just i mean it's it, i like i really like the book but it's no great story it's kind of like a a snapshot of different lives that were happening at the time. There was that slacker Gen X vibe going on in it, and not much happened in the stories, but you did kind of suddenly... I, to me, I just thought, wow, I can write about what I know, and this has become a bestseller. And so it just sort of gave me... It was like a window of opportunity, I think, uh, and I kind of saw through it and thought, OK, maybe there is something that I can do in the literary world. I, you know, at that time I was sort of been spat out the other end of education. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I, I liked books. That was a, had an English and inter-arts degree. Started doing the classic slacker thing of working in a bookshop. And I worked at Sharon Hughes and then went down to Waterstones in London. And I think it just sort of became clearer at the process of going to literary events and seeing more people like me and realising that actually there was another world out there that I could write about and people might want to read about. That's when I thought, yeah, I think I might try it. And I tried it for ages and ages and didn't really get anywhere. I was at that point as well a performance poet, so I had, right. had managed to become a poet. So it was kind of like a gradual thing and I started writing and critiquing with a bunch of friends. We were sort of writing that slacker stuff but we were also writing poetry and at that time, so this is sort of like the 90s now, we were moving into cool Britannia, that era, and people were doing lots of poetry. It wasn't a straight white man kind of vibe anymore, it was something really different and accessible, yeah. I guess. So, yeah, that was how I sort of found my way into it. What about you? And, well, I, I had a similar... I mean, I, I wasn't working class, but I grew up in a sort of fairly small town in on um, the coast of, like, northeast Scotland, and it was exactly the same. Everything I read at school was by dead white men, and I just didn't mm. think... I, I had no concept that author was a thing that you could be. And then there was a couple of books. One, when I was still at school, The Wasp Factory by Ian Banks just absolutely blew my head off for exactly oh, the yeah. reason you talk about. It's about, I mean, it was it was quite extreme, obviously, but it was about people in the northeast yeah. of Scotland who were speaking like I spoke and I recognised their lifestyles. Mm. And then in the early 90s, train spotting was a massive game changer as well. Talking about that yes. sort of the culture at the time. Yes. That you know, as a Scottish person yeah. living in Edinburgh, I kind of was adjacent to some of the you know some of the lifestyle stuff that was going on there, and I just recognised yeah. it. I just it was so clear to me then that you could write about this stuff and it could be literature and it would you know and people would read it and buy it, and it was it was an incredible moment. And then it took me you know another fifteen years to get a book out, but that's yeah. <laughs> but that's that's I think mm -hmm. part of the course quite a lot of the time. But you were mm. you were working, but you're not working in the publishing industry because you were doing marketing or something. Was it a random house? Yeah. So is that just yeah, another so way of just sort of being um, like adjacent to that world at the time? I guess so. So the kind of slacker thing took me into Sharon Hughes and then uh, and then Sharon Hughes got moved down to London and moved around to lots of different waterstones. Still wasn't really sure what I entirely wanted to do. So again, the classic slacker thing and went travelling, went through Asia and then ended up in Australia and I worked in a bookshop there and then I came back and thought, right, I think I want to go into publishing. So then I immediately started working in another bookshop, uh, <laughs> which was um, 
Camden Waterstones, though. But I sort of helped them with the events and did the windows. And I just thought, Do you know what? I, I, I let, yeah, I'm going to go into publishing. So I started applying for jobs. First job was Ebury, who did a lot of cookery books at the time. And I was a publicity assistant. And so, yeah, I worked there and ended up well I had to go on tour with two fat ladies and I was so inexperienced I lost one (laughs) that was one of my finest points but then after that because I was starting to think about writing and although still I was still mystified by the whole process but then I went up to uh, what we called CCVP which was Jonathan Cape, Chattering Windus, Vintage, Primlico and then I started doing less publicity and more marketing. So I was sort of more focused on talking to bookshops, developing the kind of posters and advertising campaigns. And, and I was able to work on Irving Welsh's stuff as well. Uh, I think we were doing, I think Filth was one of the biggest campaigns when I was there. So round about that same time, I'll explain to me this sort of timeline here, but you ended up being a TV presenter, presenting a, a show at the Channel 4 yeah. programme pulp about books how did that come about so i'd been marketing kevin sampson's books and he had a friend paul oramland who wanted was interested in doing a book program so i went over and i present he said to me kevin said look go over and present some of the books that you're marketing and then you might be able to get them on so i went over and i had a big long chat with them and sort of said these are brilliant books this is great this is great this is what's going on in the industry at the moment and at the end of that they said yes, would you be interested in presenting it? And I hadn't obviously done anything like that before, but I am a kind of like in for a penny girl. So I said, yes, yeah, absolutely. And then I didn't hear anything for about six months. And I went to Australia for a holiday. And then when I came back, the answer phone, as we all used to have answer phones back then, (laughs) we have to explain that to the kids. But it was absolutely jammed full of messages. So I went in to have a chat with them. And then while we were having a chat, this man came into the room and started setting up a camera. And I sort of said to them, oh, do we need to go? They're starting to use this room for something else. And they said, oh, no, no, we just need you to do a review of a book you've just read to the camera. And I just just said, "Uh, what what now? And they went, yeah, like uh, maybe look at the camera. Three, two, one, go. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, ah! But... I'd read The Beach by Alex Garland and I had really mixed views about it, probably because I had been travelling. Yeah. And I kind of felt that that parts of it was slightly inauthentic. I mean, on reflection now, of course they were because it's fiction and he needed a plot. But at the time, I was sort of saying, you know, basically I was like in my 20s and I was like, this wasn't like my experience backpacking actually. I've got opinions Uh, and you need to know them. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Why haven't you made it just like my experience? Because this is wrong. Uh, So I just did a fruity review of it. And they went, oh, brilliant, get your coat. So I thought, oh, right, okay, thank you. Um, All right, I'll get my coat and see you later. And they went, no, we've got a van. And they drove me up to Waterstones on Islington Green and just said, okay, go in there and um, ask people their opinions on, I don't know, what should we say, (laughs) book jackets. And so I was like, really? So I did. Yeah, then I ended up having to interview 
Kevin Sampson on stage at some point. It's just like all really crazy. And then they sort of sent all the footage over to Channel 4 and Channel 4 said, yeah, okay, we like her, go for it. And so that is kind of what happened. It was just really sort of whirlwind. So I wasn't, they really put me on the spot, but I suppose they wanted to see how I would react and, and managed to get through that. So we went on for three series. Yeah. Um, it was end of the 90s and then the beginning of the noughties. And it did have that kind of um, millennium vibe. And yeah, it was kind of, we did a lot of indie publishing and we did things like, you know, get Hell's Angels to review books written by vicars and sort of mixed up. And <laughs> That's very Channel like that. 4, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was really, really good fun. I loved it. And they had always said that we were going to go into the the mainstream but I think the slot that they were thinking about us for they decided to trial this this kind of like weird new idea of a thought reality format type thing they were sort of like you know if it doesn't work we'll give you a call and then and that that new format was called Big Brother <laughs> so you know it was Arrivederci Books yeah we've got something else going on now yeah, fair enough you know, I really loved it. I could travel around the country and I could talk about books and meet lots of interesting people. So it was just absolutely wonderful for me. And and that's when I also thought, right, do you know what? If I'm going to write a book, I really need to knuckle down and have a go at it. So I did. And actually, so the first book I wrote, I did get an agent for. I think there was some, one person was sort of interested in publishing it. But I'm so pleased that it never happened because it was like... <laughs> I don't know about you, Doug, with your... What was your first book? Did you get it published? Well, uh, yes and no. Like, I did have a first book and that got rejected by everyone. And then I wrote a second one, which then did get published. But I then went back and rewrote the first one from scratch, pretty much. Ah. Uh, so I kind of... So the central premise was the same, but it was effectively... I'm, so, I'm Like you, I'm so glad that that first edition of it never saw the yeah. light of day because it would have been, you know, unbearable. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and also you'd be typecast, wouldn't you? I mean, mine was sort of like in all of that kind of vibe that I was talking about. It's like, yeah, man, okay, so it's about a young girl who goes clubbing in London. You know, it's like, oh my God, no, thank God it didn't get published. <laughs> Actually, so that kind of coincided with um, there was, I was thinking about doing rewrites to that book, but I was also pregnant with my son. And in my stupid kind of naive way, I thought, oh, do you know what? I'll do these rewrites once I've had the baby. Because, uh, you know, I can't sleep at the moment. So baby will be sleeping. I'll be able to bounce the baby on my knee yeah, and write at the same time. <laughs> I'll have loads of time once the baby's born. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, I was yeah. just like, oh, so that never happens. And again, thank God. So I didn't write for ages. And then, well, I had been writing, but obviously then you have a baby and, you know, bang, you have no time at all. Your life completely changes and you're just like, God, I used to have all of that time I wasted. Yeah. And then I moved out of London, sort of boomeranged back to Essex in search of cheaper childcare for my son's grandparents. But I, I took a job at the local college lecturing in publishing. Okay. And they were very keen on upskilling us. So in the end, they, they said, look, do you want to do an MA? We'll pay for three quarters of it. I said, yeah. And they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'd like to do creative writing. So I ended up doing an MA at City. 
and it was fantastic. It was such a good course. I did two years part-time and I had to write a book for that. But my tutor was Harriet Gilbert. He, she's now, she now runs the BBC Book Club and the World Service. And she was fantastic. She was a really fantastic educator. And I learnt loads and loads of stuff there. I completely improved my writing skills. And I started to understand the craft a bit more. But that book that I wrote didn't get published either. But then the next one was The Drowning Pool. Yeah. So And that kind of was the one that got me started really you know I do remember all of those years of thinking god am I ever going to get published (laughs) you know when I was writing The Drowning Pool I was thinking if this doesn't get published I'm not going to try anymore because I think you know it's I always used to wonder if you know you think you can write your friends say you can write but actually you know are you like one of those people who was on the X Factor who said yeah I've got the X Factor and then they go (laughs) just like Oh, I was thinking maybe that's like me with the writing. <laughs> maybe just like everyone's like, yeah, yeah, you can write, but you write, yeah, it's rubbish. But then luckily, uh, did get the deal with Harper Collins, and everything sort of moved on from there. Really, yeah. I mean, it strikes me that part of what could have influenced this book, and you couldn't have written this book if you hadn't gone back to Essex, if you know what I mean. Because I mean, it's, you know, Essex is such a big part yeah. of, of your fictional yeah. world now. And yeah. witches. So Essex and witches are your two, mm. are your two things, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I wondered whether the sort of return to Essex was part of bringing that stuff back into focus because you grew up there, then went away and did a lot of travelling mm. and then ended up going back. And I wonder if that was part of sort of the, the backdrop to thinking about what, how the drowning pool was going to was going to form it's it's really interesting actually Doug no one's asked me that before so this is an interesting reflection I am having at the moment (laughs) Um, but you're right I don't think I could have written it I wouldn't have written it if I'd stayed in London definitely wouldn't I'd been really interested by the legend of Sarah Moore I'd heard about it very very vaguely when I was growing up a few people knew about it but and when I was sort of coming back down to look for places to live, the Sarah Moore opened. So the, the Sarah Moore is the pub that is named after Sarah Moore, the sea witch of yeah. the Leon Sea. Um, and I was really interested in the legends. And, and because the pub had opened, everybody suddenly knew the legends. So there was lots of talk about it. And I think, yeah, that definitely fired my interest and I had more people to interview about her legend and then I was able to I kind of like went on a detective trail to find out if she really existed and also at the same time I was teaching publishing and I was staggered by some of the uh, so it was a BND so it was sort of 16 to 19 year olds and staggered when some of them went out for interviews for universities or colleges or trying to get their first job quite often at that time the interviews would open their personal files and say oh you're from Essex are you oh so you're an Essex girl are you <laughs> Jesus Christ. yeah so you know when I was thinking oh my god hang on this was in the 80s this was going on and this was sort of like the early 2000s and I was like really it's still going on and the problem with the Essex girl stereotype is that you know it has been embraced by the dictionaries it's in the dictionaries and the Oxford Learners Dictionary which goes out to foreign students 
And children, until recently, because we did manage to get it out, but until recently it said the Essex girl is a young girl or woman who is unintelligent, materialistic, speaks in a loud and ugly way, and, wait for it, is very willing to have sex. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, so, (laughs) but, you know, my students were saying, you know, if an interviewer, usually a man, if they say, oh, you're an Essex girl, are you? If you, you're trying to get into an academic establishment, so you don't want to say, yes, (laughs) yes, I am, because the stereotypes about you being thick and loose, likewise, you don't want to do that to uh, potential employers. But then at the same time, if you go, well, actually, I don't, that's a bit of a stereotype that would don't really agree with, then, you know, they can go, oh, I've got a right one here. Yeah, you basically, um, <laughs> geez, yeah. No, it's, an so impo- you, it's an impossible situation. Exactly, and I did, just didn't think it was very fair that girls from the county have to deal with that as well as everything else. You know, it doesn't feel like they're on a kind of level playing field. So started campaigning about it and writing articles and... And then eventually, sort of, the two worlds collided when I was doing my research for Witch Hunt and looking at all of the witch hunts in Essex and just sort of, we had loads. My statistic that I always use is between 1560 and 1680 in Surrey, Sussex, and Hertfordshire, there were 185 indictments for witchcraft. But for the same period, Essex on its own had 503. Wow. So really significantly a lot more. I mean, at the same time, nothing compared to your luck up there. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is like, this is, we, we were like the mini Scotland in England. But yeah, you guys were ferocious. And that concludes episode 432, which was recorded by Doug Johnston and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 433... In the second part of this interview, Sid Moore speaks with Doug Johnston about Essex witches and their influence on her books, her new project exploring the occult in World War II, and the dilemma of whether to address or ignore the COVID-19 pandemic in an ongoing book series. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.